I'm going to read Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. 47 through 50, as we look at the parable of the net. Jesus, still speaking, says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered every kind, or gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would come and bless the reading of Your Word and bless our time as we, we seek to study it and understand it. And Lord, as I preach a sermon of warning, I pray that if there would be one here who is not a believer, that You would, would grant them repentance and faith. Call them to Yourself. Lord, hell is real. Judgment is necessary. And Lord, the Gospel is good news. And so I pray that You would help me to faithfully exposit the Scriptures and to faithfully proclaim the Gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So in, in chapter or verses uh, 24 through 30 of chapter 20 or chapter 13, we studied the parable of the wheat and the weeds, often called the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that parable, you'll remember, was given to correct the wrong thinking concerning the current state of the kingdom of heaven when it was inaugurated. Because the predominant view held by the Jewish people, a predominant view held by many in our day, is that when the kingdom of heaven arrives or exists, that evil will be done away with. And so Jesus gave that parable to say, no, the, the kingdom of heaven is currently present, it's here, but at the same time, evil and good exists alongside one another. And the focus was on that point, the, the present state of the kingdom, more than the eschatological state. In other words, the parable made reference to the end of the age, and we spent a whole week talking about judgment coming at the end of the age, but the main thrust of that parable was, until that time comes, there will be wheat and weeds growing together until the harvest. The, 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 the main thrust was not the end of the age. It was not necessarily uh, eschatological. Now we come to this parable of the net. And the parable of the net is almost a parallel parable. They're almost exactly the same in their teaching, except now the focus has shifted. And the focus is not primarily right now the present state of the kingdom. The focus is primarily 
the end, the eschatological kingdom or the, the kingdom at the end of the age. So, whereas the previous parable, as, I, as, I, as we look at the previous parable, it would encourage God's people as they looked around them and they were able to see evil, they would be encouraged because Jesus would say, well, don't think that evil has to be done away with. It can still be here and you should be encouraged to live in light of the presence of the kingdom, live as victorious people until the end. This parable comes as a parable of warning. Warning of judgment because there are those who think themselves to be citizens of the kingdom who are not citizens of the kingdom. There are those who are looking forward to consummation but are only going to receive condemnation. There are those who are anticipating paradise but will only receive punishment. In other words, some people are longing for heaven, but they're just going to get hell. And this parable comes as a warning to not be deceived. Don't think yourselves a part of something that you're not really a part of. That's the thrust of this parable. It's a parable of warning. So I want to do three things with this parable. Like always, I want to walk through an exposition of the parable itself and then the explanation, because this is another one of the parables where Jesus gives the explanation. So we're going to look at those. Then we're going to talk about how it is that this kingdom can gather into its ranks those who are not actually citizens of the kingdom. And then thirdly, I want to talk in closing about how the coming judgment fits into the gospel. We always want to close with the gospel, and especially when it comes to judgment. I want to show how that fits into the gospel. How can judgment be a part of the good news? So the first heading we're going to look at is the parable of the net, found in verses 47 through 48. The parable of the net. Jesus begins by saying again, the kingdom of heaven. And throughout all of Matthew chapter 13, the focus is the kingdom of heaven. And remember our definition that we're, we're using as we talk about the present kingdom of heaven is the sovereign, redemptive rule and reign of God through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, in the hearts of His people, for His own glory and purposes. That's the definition. Right now, that's what it looks like. God ruling over His people through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, in our hearts, for His own glory and purposes. He rules, He reigns. He has authority, He has dominion. Now that's expanding and that's growing and, and eventually in the future that will consume all things. But right now, presently, it's seen in the hearts of His people. We'll leave the future aspect uh, for later. So this kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a net. Or in other words, the kingdom of heaven, the sovereign, redemptive rule and reign of God through Christ by His Holy Spirit in the hearts of His people for His own glory and purposes, is like a process that begins with a net. Now the word here for net, and this is important, the word here for a net is not the normal word used for a small casting net. If you're fishing, there are two ways you can use a net. There are small nets that one person can use. He can put that net in one hand, and get some rope in the other hand, and he can stand on a boat or maybe at the, the, in the shore of the sea, and if he sees 
some fish in the water right there near him, he can throw that net in and quickly pull it in and the net will cinch together and gather in those fish in that small spot. That would be a small casting net. But the word used for the net here is not the word for a small casting net. This is the kind of net that you would use with at least two people or sometimes stretched between two boats that have floats at the top and weights at the bottom. It would go all the way down to the bottom of the sea and up out of the top of the water and they would drag it across a spance of water. And so anything within that spance is going to get consumed or absorbed into that net. So you could have two people standing along the edge of the sea, walking along with it, or if you've seen Free Willy, you know that they can use these things to catch orca whales and put them into a theme park and, and break little kids' hearts. So this is that kind of net. A large net that sweeps in everything in its path. A small net would catch whatever's in this little spot. You see some fish, you throw it in real quick, you pull it out. Look up videos on YouTube... Because I did, you can watch people do this. He throws it in, he pulls it out real quick, you got fish. You got this large dragnet that covers a huge area, just takes in everything. Anything that is, that is bigger than the holes in the net gets caught up in the net. It could be a boot, or a tire, or a piece of seaweed, or a fish, or anything, crab, anything. So the kingdom of heaven is like this large dragnet that's been thrown into the sea. It was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And that's what this type of dragnet does. Unless the fish is so small that it gets through, it catches everything. All kinds of fish. This, this net is not just aiming for this little, this little section of sea. It's catching everything. Verse 48. When it was full, that is, when, when this, is, this job is complete, when the gathering, the catching process is over, you drag it along until it's full. And again, it's full. So this is a good fishing day. This is not a puny day. It's full. You're done. You can't get any more in. So the, the next step in the process is to get it out of the water. So when it was full... Men drew it ashore and sat down. Just like we read in Hebrews 1. Sitting down is a, is, is, is a, a symbol for being finished. You're done with the work. And specifically in this parable, there's no more catching to be done. You move on to the next part of the work. So the men drew it ashore and they sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So as soon as they get done catching, they draw it ashore and, and separation takes place. Good fish are saved for food. Now, for the Jewish people, good fish means clean fish that they can eat. Fish with scales and fins. They would save those fish because they could eat them or sell them at the market or whatever. They were beneficial to them. But they would throw away the bad, the unclean fish. Fish without scales or without fins. If they were to catch a catfish or a shark or a dolphin, something without scales, that's a bad fish, get rid of it. Good fish you keep because they're beneficial. That which is caught and that is, is not useful is discarded. So Jesus says, 
the kingdom of heaven, sovereign, redemptive rule and reign of God, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, in the hearts of His people, for His own glory and purposes, is like a large dragnet that's been dropped down in the water that's just sweeping up everything in its path, but that will eventually have to be drug out of the water and, and gone through and sorted out when the catching is over. Now you can see the relation between this parable and the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Both of the parables show that there's good and there's bad mixed together until the end. The separation takes place at the end and the separation is all at once. Once separation begins, that's when the catching is over. But there are differences. Here in this parable, Jesus makes a special reference to this net the, the fishing process of, of catching and then drawing it ashore. And he relates this to the kingdom of heaven. So it seems like here the focus is less on the evil advances of Satan, you know, in the wheat and the weeds. Satan comes along and plants his sons in. The enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat. Well, here it's not the advances of the evil one. So much it is as it is the fact that the kingdom itself will have some drawing power over those who are ultimately not saved. They're not in the kingdom. They'll be drawn in, but eventually they're only sorted out. So the main idea of this parable, it seems, is, is sorting and discarding. There's a large draw and then sorting and discarding. But let's look at... The second heading, the explanation of the parable, found in verses 49 and 50. Jesus, after giving this parable, says, So it will be at the end of the age. We've talked about the end of the age a lot. This two-age idea. In the Bible, there are two ages. There's this age, and there's the age to come. And Jesus gives this parable about the, the kingdom drawing in much that has to be sorted out. And He says, so it will be at the end of the age. When He says the age, He's talking about the current, temporal, worldly age. And if, we stu- if we've studied our Bibles properly, we know that the end of this age signifies the beginning of the eternal age. So at the end of... This age, when we talked about the wheat and the weeds, remember we learned that the separation of the wicked unto judgment and the righteous unto glory is inevitable, but not until the end of the age. Here he gives this parable and he says, so it will be at the end of the age. It's talking about what's going to happen at the end, emphasizing what's happening at the end, not so much the present activity But, what's happening presently, from our perspective, is very important in understanding what's going to take place at the end. Because if we're going to be warned about the end, then we need to be watching presently. So we'll we'll get to that in a minute. So, what's going to happen at the end of the age? Jesus says, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Now, this is what was pictured by the sorting of the good fish and the bad fish. When all the gathering is over, the sorting begins. 
Or, or to say it another way, when the sorting begins, when separation happens, that's how we know the gathering is over. At that point, there will be no more good fish and bad fish together. At that point, there will be no more wheat and weeds together. Now, why am I making a big deal about that? The Bible never describes a scenario where there's judgment, and then after some type of judgment, there's still wicked people and good people together. Or, or a scenario where the angels come and Jesus comes, but then after that, there's still wicked people and good people together. The Bible never describes this intermediate millennial age after this age, but before the next age where Christians and non-Christians live together. The only time the wheat and the weeds are together is prior to the harvest. The only time good fish and bad fish are together is prior to separation. The harvest happens at the end of the age. The sorting happens at the end of the age. Therefore, if there is a millennial age where there are good fish and bad fish together, wheat and weeds together, it can only be descriptive of the current state of affairs. That's just a little eschatology side note. So the angels come, and when the angels come, they begin this separation process. They come with Jesus, we learn from other passages of Scripture, which we'll read later. Jesus comes, His angels come with Him, and they begin this separation process. And it says they separate the evil from the righteous. Now what do they do with these evil ones? I think it's interesting in verse 50, the phrase says, and throw them into the fiery furnace. Now we've already seen this description in verse 42. And throw them into the fiery furnace. And the focus here again is on getting the evil ones out. The earlier parable spoke of what's going to happen to the evil ones and then it went on to the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This parable doesn't do that. It just says they're going to separate out the evil ones and throw them. Who's them? I'm going to separate the evil from the righteous. He names two groups and then he says, and throw them. Who's the them? It's, it's the evil ones because he says, throw them out. Throw them into the fiery furnace. There's no mention of the righteous anymore. That's how we know this is a parable of warning of judgment. Judgment is coming on the evil ones. We've already discussed the righteous, but this is purely a warning parable. Of course, the fiery furnace is a reference to flaming, torturous, eternal punishments of hell. They will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Just like we read in that previous parable of the wheat and the weeds, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And like we said before, no one in hell is weeping and gnashing their teeth because they're sorry. Or because they want out now. They're tired of it. They're weeping and they're gnashing their teeth because they are in torment and because they're angry. Because they're mad at God. Because they are ferociously hateful towards God. They'd love another chance to shake their fist in His face one more time. So you don't become more open to the Gospel because you've been turned over into hell from every good grace of God. Some people say, well, they're going to get to hell and they're going to wish they could hear the gospel. And they're going to wish they could repent. Oh, that they would love to 
No, they're going to be more hateful, more depraved than they were ever depraved on earth. That's why they're weeping and gnashing their teeth in hateful hatred and pain. So the focus of this parable is warning. Be warned. Warning about the eternal punishment of the wicked. And the warning goes like this. The kingdom of heaven, as it comes with the inauguration, as Jesus comes and He begins preaching, the kingdom is at hand. It's here. We're waiting for the consummation. And so between those two times, His first advent and His second advent, during all that time, the kingdom is advancing and it is, it is consuming everything in its path. But that will eventually have to be sorted out. All kinds of people will be gathered in, but eventually there will have to take place a, a sorting and an extraction of false citizens out for punishment. And the warning is, beware that you are not one of these false citizens that have merely been swept in by the wide sweep of the kingdom. We know that when it's all said and done, everything is under the feet of Jesus. You'll, you'll be there. Every unbeliever will someday bow to King Jesus. The question is, will you bow willingly now or be forced to bow at the end? So it's a warning. Beware that you are not a false citizen. So the question, that ends the, the exposition. The question, by way of application, is this. How does this work? How does the kingdom, which tends to be this intangible concept or idea, how does it sweep into its ranks people who will eventually be separated out? If the kingdom of God is the sovereign, redemptive rule and reign of God in Christ over the hearts of His people for His own glory and purposes by the Holy Spirit, how does it work that that gathers in the unbelieving that will have to be extracted? That's, that's the question. And what I want to do is, is take those four categories that we used last week. That I came up with those to try to, to make this kingdom tangible to us or, or sort of uh, whet our appetites with the, the kingdom in our daily lives. I want to take those four categories and show how those can draw in people who are unbelieving false citizens. Those categories were entrance into the kingdom, the daily life of the kingdom, the regular advance of the kingdom, and then the future hope of the kingdom. And we ask, how can those four areas gather in false converts? How does that happen? And then, of course, the most pressing question is, are you one of those? Is, is this, does this describe you? So the first heading or, or area of the kingdom we can discuss is the entrance into the kingdom, which we said was, would be kind of descriptive of initial conversion. Um, for us, for the true convert, this would be regeneration, rebirth. But we could also throw in there the conversion experience. And so we can ask the question, and this is, as soon as I ask this question, many of you could answer it. How does that initial conversion experience 
draw in false converts? And that's easy to answer because many of us in this room are the fruit of a false conversion experience wherein later you heard the true gospel, realized you were the fruit of a false conversion experience, and then were saved. You, you can say, well, I, I, I did this or I did that, but then it wasn't until later I realized that I needed to be saved. And these most of the time are the fruits of of revivalism in our, our nation, in our culture, this, this type of emotionalism that runs the average worship service where you, you convince people to make an emotional decision through emotional manipulation rather than using God's law to convict of sin and then applying the ointment of the gospel to draw them to Christ. See, that's how preaching should work. Here's the law. Here's where you've fallen short. God's perfect standard. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. And you need a Savior. But that's not how it generally works in the culture of revivalism. Revivalism says, now's the time. Here's the sappy music. Here's the scary hell story. I'm going to scare you into making a decision for Christ. And we, we advertise this. We've had a hundred decisions for Christ. What does that mean? The demons make decisions for Christ. They hate Him. I, I decide today I hate Jesus. That doesn't mean anything to make a decision for Christ. Well, everyone else is doing it. Come down to the altar and make a decision. This might be your last chance. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, nobody's sitting in their seat saying, well, I think I might kind of want to go to hell. Nobody does. And so we, they, th- this emotional manipulation has swept in masses of false converts into the net of the kingdom. They pretend to be citizens and they base their salvation, their standing with God on a decision they made or an aisle they walked or a card they signed or a prayer that they parroted after a preacher. And when it comes judgment time, you're going to be cast out. You're going to be a bad fish. So, is that you? You're basing your standing with God on something you've done. I don't believe we're going to be asked, why should I let you into my heaven? But if God were to ask and your first response is, well, I... You're out. Your response must be, Christ. In my place. You shouldn't let me in, Lord. I have no business being here at all. I have no business being in your presence. But because of the blood of Christ, I have been ushered into your presence. Not by any merit of my own. But revivalism tends to make these steps you take at that conversion experience the central heart of salvation. And that's not it. Secondly, daily life in the kingdom. Remember, this was... Uh, sanctification and holy living or, or the fruit of sanctification. If God rules in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, He's taking over, He's taking dominion, He's changing us, sanctifying us, and then we are then living out the fruits of our salvation. And our lives look differently as Christians. So the question would be, how does holy living or sanctification, sweep in false converts? And the answer, if we just think logically about this, there are many who have never been truly converted who are, who are lured in 
under the compulsion of just the rejection of worldliness. And they're the adoption of Christian principles. They think those things make them right with God. The, the idea of asceticism or rigid discipline is, is attractive to a lot of people. They like it. They like rules and order and structure. They're the fundamentalists who find joy in just being against everything that everybody else is for. I'm against. What are you against? Well, I'm just against. I'm anti. Anti what? I'm just anti. Well, that doesn't make you right with God just because you're against something. Well, they're saying our own in our own midst. Homeschooling parents who say, well, we're Christians because we we homeschool. That doesn't make you a Christian. Or there are men. I'm a Christian because I love to study theology and doctrine. That doesn't make us Christians. But for some, just the idea of rigid discipline and structure and order and being anti-world is attractive. They like it. This is why people do martial arts and go on diets and run and ride their bike on the road. They like discipline and they like order. This is the allurement of every false religion in the world. I can do this, structure my life this way, and I will satisfy God or the gods. We call this legalism. And we need to understand that term. Legalism is not... I'm a Christian. God the Holy Spirit is is working change in my life. I'm repenting of sin. And I'm living, seeking to live a holy life out of gratitude for what God has done for me in Christ. And I'm seeing things in the world that I want no part in. That's not legalism. There are movies I don't watch, music I don't listen to, places I don't go, things I don't wear. That's not legalism. Now, if I do all those things and I say, now God, I've done all these things, you owe me something. That is legalism. And there are many people who structure their lives or order their lives on this false fruit, false sanctification, thinking that is salvation, and it's not. Some of the kids could answer this question. Can anyone be saved by his own righteousness? The answer is no. No one is good enough for God. We can't order our lives strict enough to be holy before God. So this draws in many false converts. The third one would be the regular advance of the kingdom. This is evangelism, mission, local and globally. This is a tough one because we might say, how in the world could evangelism and world mission, local mission, how could that sweep in a false convert. But again, just think practically. The way some people are geared, they're just proactive. They just want a job to do. They show up, you give them a job, they'll be in the church forever as long as they have a job. And that would include going out, participating in some sort of evangelism ministry. Some people love feeling like they have uh, influence over others. Some people are natural born salesmen and they just love feeling like they can coerce people. Many popular evangelists have turned out to be phonies over the years. They were lured in by 
by just the, the, the art or the business of having persuasion over people. And eventually they just get tired. They get burnt out and they walk away. They were never Christians. They just fell in love with the business of it. And I would imagine many will still be in business when Jesus comes back and they will be sorted out. Fourthly, the future hope of the kingdom. This is um, the new heaven and the new earth. And the question that comes at this point is, how on earth could the allurements of heaven ever sweep in a false convert? Of Of course, that's sarcastic. This is probably the most popular one because everybody wants heaven. And nobody wants hell. If we think of the impetus of this parable, it is judgment. Think of what has propelled many evangelism ministries and many outreach ministries. It is judgment. Why is that? Because nobody wants to go to hell. If all you have to offer people is my ticket out of hell, everybody's getting saved. And so we wave heaven in front of people's faces and of course they're going to take that ticket. The Bible's description of hell is so obviously dreadful, so clearly horrible and so shockingly violent and loathsome that any sane person who gives it a thought at all will take whatever life preserver you offer them to get out of it. If they read it and they consider the truth the Bible teaches about hell, they'll take anything. And so many who think they've gotten their vaccination from everlasting condemnation are just false converts swept into the kingdom. Maybe that's you. Maybe you just don't want to go to hell. And you're, you're, you're trying for a while and you're, you're staying in line and you're trying to obey the rules hoping that maybe at the end one of the angels will pick you up and analyze you and maybe see scales and fins and not throw you out. But that's not how you make it into the kingdom. You will be rejected. Judgment must come. And that's the point of this parable. Judgment must come. You can see how the kingdom has this wide sweep. Matthew is clear over and over in his gospel. There are two types of people. Those who will incur judgment leading to wrath. And those who will incur mercy leading to everlasting joy. In Matthew chapter 7, there were false prophets and there were true prophets. Good trees and bad trees. Good fruit and bad fruit. And the bad trees will be lopped off and cast into the fire. There are those on that day who will say, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? Cast out demons? And He's going to say, depart from Me, I don't know You. There will be those who build their house on the rock and those who build their house on the sand. In Matthew chapter 8, there are those who will come from east and west and north and south to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but there will be those who will be thrown out into outer darkness. We've seen in this chapter, there, will, there are wheat and there are weeds. There is good soil and there is bad soil. There are good fish and there are bad fish. In Matthew chapter 22, there are two types of wedding guests. One with the wedding gown on and one with the or the wedding garments on and those without the wedding garments. And those without the wedding garments will be bound hand and foot and thrown into outer darkness. In Matthew 25, there are ten virgins. Five of them were wise and ready, and five were not. And those who were not will be pounding on the door saying, Let us in, and it will be too late. 
There are good servants and there are wicked and slothful servants, and the slothful servant is cast into outer darkness. In Matthew chapter 25, I'll read this section. A few verses out of this about the final judgment. Beginning in verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, notice Jesus comes, the angels come with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. When Jesus comes at that moment with the angels at His side, then separation takes place. Verse 33, and He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. You're either a sheep or a goat. Verse 41, then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. If you're a goat, you're banished to eternal hell. So violently painful and terrifying that it will suffice to punish the devil and his demons. Verse 46, speaking, it says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Verse 34, speaking of those on His right hand, the sheep, the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You're either a sheep or a goat. You're either eternally blessed or eternally cursed. Matthew's theme is just Jesus' theme. In all these places, he's just recording the words of Jesus. You're either one of two kinds of people. Righteous or unrighteous. Evil or good. Saved or lost. In Christ or in Adam. Everyone in this room is in one of two categories. Everyone. In a hundred years, everyone in this room will either be in a blessed state with God or suffering eternal punishment in outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and a hell bad enough for Satan and his demons. Now the question we ask is why judgment? Why must there be judgment? If God is so loving, then why would He treat people this way? It's because God is holy. He's created us in His image for His glory. He's given us His perfect standard as His law. law, And every one of us have thrown it out and said we will not have your law. We're by nature children of wrath, born under the curse of the law, rebellious, and we've broken every one of His commands. And because He is good, and because He is holy, and because He is just, He must punish sin. And if He's going to punish sin, then He must judge sin. He must hold all sinners up to the standard and find them wanting. We're all wanting. We've all fallen short. The good news is God has sent His Son into the world to live vicariously in the place of His people, obeying every command that God ever gave to the T, every every standard of the law. And He did it. And then God, the Bible says, He he put Him forth as a propitiation. He, He offered Him up for the sins of His people. And as He hung on the cross... He not only suffered the violent death of the cross, He suffered under the full weight of the wrath of God being poured full force on Him in that moment. If you want to know what it's like to hold 350 pounds on a dumbbell on your shoulders, don't ask me because I can't do it. But if you want to know 
what it's like, then ask a weightlifter, a bodybuilder who's done it. And he can describe the weight and the pressure because he's done it without buckling. Christ hung on the cross. And yeah, He suffered the grueling pain of the cross, but He also suffered under the full weight of the eternal wrath of God for every single sin of every single one of God's people for all of human history in that moment. He spiritually, metaphorically descended into the depths of hell itself for His people. And He died. And three days later, God raised Him up from the dead according to the testimony of over 500 eyewitnesses. And His raising Him up from the dead was God saying, it's done. He doesn't have to stay dead. He doesn't have to stay under the curse of sin because the curse has been broken. It's been lifted. And then He ascended to the right hand of the Father where He now sits interceding on our behalf and ruling and reigning over all things as the King of all kings. Now, judgment. There has to be judgment. But if we will trust in Jesus, that is, throw ourselves at His mercy and, and trust in His perfect life in our place, His death in our place, then we just get to bypass the judgment because He's already taken it. We, we get to do a, an end run around it and we have to suffer no judgment because Jesus has already suffered that judgment, but you must repent and believe if you are to be saved. It's the only way. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. You see, this kingdom, it has a very wide sweep and there are many ways to be falsely swept into its ranks. But there's only one way to be rightly born into this kingdom, and that is by faith in the Son of God who has given Himself for us on our behalf. Let's pray.